morning boys and girls this is Chris Wilson and I'm coming to you to give you the children's message for First Baptist Church I say good morning because this is going out to you as a regular morning children's message so no matter when you receive it just picture yourself in church for the children's sermon this is very new to all of us so I ask that you be patient and give grace we are trying different ways to communicate with our church family and still do not know what will work best but we love you, and we want to stay connected as a church so that we can share the love of Jesus Christ with you, even if it is at a distance. I hope that each of you had a bit of fun on spring break. 
My heart hurts for all of us because at the end of our break, we were told we would have another two weeks away from school. And then we were told there would not be any school held in our classrooms for the rest of the school year. It is for our safety and the health and safety of others that we were asked to do this. We have had so many changes happening in the past few days that I bet it is very confusing to you. Boys and girls, it is confusing to me as well. But in all of this change and uncertainty, there's one thing that I want you to be absolutely without a doubt certain of, and that is God's unfailing love and faithfulness. God speaks to us in the Bible about never leaving us. In Isaiah 41.10, God tells us, Do not be afraid, for I am with you. Boys and girls, you must believe this truth. God is always with you, no matter what happens in your life. He created each of us, and He cares deeply what happens to us. God asks us to obey Him and to call upon His name and to give Him the praise He is deserving of. Let's pray together to God this very simple prayer. Dear God, I am thankful for all you give, for food, for love, and a place to live. I thank you for my family too, and I want you to know that I love you. Amen. And so, boys and girls, while you have had to leave your teacher and your friends in your class without a word of goodbye, see you next week, or talk to you later, or even a high five as you went out the door, you must know that God is with you. Your First Baptist Church family loves you. We miss you very much, and we are all praying for you. Good morning, church. I hope that this second week of containment of this quarantine is finding you well, that your families are being blessed and you are in great health. I have been praying for you constantly. This is the sermon intended for March 29th, 2020. The text is John 11, 1 through 44. The title, The Man Who Was Dead Four Days. Death is not the end. And what we are experiencing right now is not life. Christians are children of the resurrection, and our God has conquered the grave. We fear nothing because the Lord reigns. We have no need because... Our Father owns the world. The kingdom has been revealed, and we know that what we have here is temporary, and that is because our Lord is a conqueror, and He has conquered death. Death is angry because Jesus Christ has stolen us from its grasp. Amen. There is a true story of a chaplain. This takes place in Danville, Pennsylvania, and it's uh, over a decade ago, but this chaplain was on duty and she was called to the bedside of a woman who had had a severe heart attack, and she rushes to the bedside, but by the time she gets there, the woman had already been pronounced dead, and all the staff except for a single nurse and doctor had left. And she had turned to leave too, when she felt the Holy Spirit tell her to stay and pray. And as she prayed, she says that the Holy Spirit welled up inside her, and it felt like the Holy Spirit was praying through her. And suddenly the woman just sat straight up and cried out, 
What's going on here? And everybody was in shock. And I think we would be in shock too. We do not expect the dead to rise. And that seems funny to me when we consider who we are. With our, our scriptures and our faith and our God, we should be believers in resurrection power. Why do we always limit him, church? Why do we always say God cannot or will not or has not? This is the truth. His power is infinite and his love is without end. And in my eyes, one of the beautiful elements of the story of Lazarus is that both of these are displayed in wonderful ways. God's power and God's love. We are familiar with this story. Jesus, of course, and his close friends, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. In the New Testament, we see Jesus in their home, often sharing a meal, talking about life. In my mind, they're having a few laughs. Jesus is very close to this family. And at the beginning of the story, Jesus is, is a little bit far away. He's at the Jordan River, and he's doing ministry and he's avoiding Judah and Jerusalem because um, the peak opposition to Jesus by the, the religious leaders had come. And the time was drawing close to begin that fateful week, um, which we are quickly approaching in Easter. And so he's up at the Jordan River when news comes to him that, that Lazarus is sick. And in our human understanding of the way God works, and sometimes when we get so ahead of ourselves with our own plans and our own wisdom, we would think that upon hearing, Jesus would, would drop everything and rush to Lazarus' side. But God always has his own schedule and plan. And we would say, yes, but this is his friend. And then we see Jesus do nothing for two days. He just makes a prophetic statement in verse 4. This sickness is not to death, but for the glory of God. And I think it's really sad to think about this story at first from the perspective of the sisters, Mary and Martha. Jesus is going to be late. And he's going to be negligent at first in their eyes. And they might be a little bit angry in their grief. They had sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is ill. And he stays there for 48 hours more. He's not in a hurry. And it's interesting words, right? The one that you love. You see, we know this. Love sees in special eyes. And the sisters were sure that Jesus loved Lazarus so much that he would rush to them. But by the time Jesus arrives, Mary and Martha had already buried their brother. And they're upset and they're filled with grief. And we read scripture sometimes like it's a geology textbook. I don't know why we make it so, so dry and boring. But these are humans in human situations with human emotions. And I want you to think about Martha in this phrase. Can you picture her running up to Jesus and just beating on his chest? Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Mary is still back in the house too overcome to even meet Jesus. 
No one listening to today's sermon is a stranger to what grief is. Death is universal. Its tendrils of power have corrupted every part of God's creation. It wasn't supposed to be this way. We weren't supposed to die, but we have invited this destructive power into the world by our sin. And because this is a foreigner to our creation, it, it's, a, it's a usurper. It is human nature to hate it, to hurt from it, to grieve because of its power. And in my experience, sometimes that grief springs up after many years of it being quiet. And Jesus is God, yes, but he's also human and he's not immune. And the scriptures tell us he's a man well acquainted with grief. And he loved Lazarus. And so Jesus wept. It's just two words long, but it's one of the biggest verses in the Bible because it shows the heart of God. Jesus fully understands the situation here. Don't be confused. Jesus knows the power and joy of resurrection. He knows who he is, and he knows who the Father is, and he knows the Father's power, and he knows what's going to happen. This isn't crying because of goodbye, and this isn't tears because it's hopeless. He is in sorrow because he hurts for the hurting. And that is part of the very nature of God. He empathizes with, with our tears. This is what the scriptures tell us. When we cry, he sees us. He hears us. He remembers our sorrows. It says he stores our tears in his bottle. And, and when we hurt, he draws cl close to us. And he binds up the brokenhearted. In this story, God is weeping. Because his friend died. And it is comforting to me to know that scripture calls us God's friends now. And that the Psalms tell us, Costly is the death of a saint in the eyes of the Lord. There is an author and lecturer, Leo Buscalia. I don't know how you do this, but he wanted to hold a contest to judge the most caring child in the world. And the winner was a four-year-old boy whose neighbor had just lost his wife. And the little boy saw the man crying on the front porch, and he ran over, and he climbed up on his lap and just sat there. And when his mother asked him what he had said to the neighbor, he replied, nothing. I was just helping him cry. More than that little boy is a great God who is always present. And I want you to think about those moments of grief, especially for me, those funerals. For those who have died in the Lord, there are tears, yes. And there is grief, yes. But there is God's presence as well. God is there. Through the grief, when the tears are still flowing, he is right there. And he's more than just a comforter. He's more than just somebody who loves us. He has power to alter the world and to change our situations. 
the crowd that was gathered there that morning, they're weeping because it's hopeless. It, he's dead, and that's it. And there were some there that should have been believers in the resurrection. The two sisters, Mary and Martha, they said they believed, but they did not actually believe. Resurrection was theoretically possible, but situationally impossible. It didn't cross their mind that it could happen to them. And Jesus shows up. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. This is significant because Jewish people believe that the soul remained in the vicinity of the body for three days. It hoped to rejoin the body. But on the fourth day, it was like the spirit kind of just gave up and it accepted reality and departed. The fact that Lazarus had been in the tomb four days means there is no possibility in the Jewish mind of his soul rejoining his body now. He's dead, dead. Four days is hopeless, even for the Messiah. The sisters know it's too late. There's nothing Jesus can do about it now. Except Jesus says, take away the stone. We have talked for a month now about the foreshadowing, and obviously it's easy to see the heavy foreshadowing here of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, every teaching and miracle over this the last couple of weeks is Jesus trying to reach out to his followers and get them to understand what is going to happen and what is possible. He wants them to know what God is about to do and what God can do. They limit God so much. He cannot, and he will not, and he has not. But God can do anything. Martha protests, because after four days, the body would start decomposing, the smell and the sight would have been too much suffering. You know, it's almost like she says to Jesus, enough is enough. You already lollygagged. Now you're going to make it even worse by defiling the tomb? And Jesus says this to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I know you always hear me. But I say this for the sake of the crowd standing here, so that they may believe you have sent me. Notice that Jesus' prayer does not include a request for Lazarus' resurrection. It is purely a prayer of thanksgiving that the Father has heard the prayer. Jesus is confident because his will is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work. And he, he and the Father are one. Jesus' prayer is a public witness to the crowd so that they may too believe. He wants to direct everyone's eyes in a way away from the tomb and to God the Father. This is for his glory, and it's going to be through his power. And yet it authenticates Jesus as well, because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, as well as confirming the promise that he had made his followers, those who believe in me 
Though they die, will live, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And Jesus is standing outside the tomb, and he calls in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the verse says, The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth, and his face wrapped in a cloth. This is true resurrection power. I saw a story about a pastor who would occasionally go out on a personal retreat to pray and to seek God's direction for his ministry. And one time when he was on this retreat, someone called the church and the secretary answered and asked to speak to the pastor. And the secretary replied, I'm sorry, but he's gone to be with the Lord. And when there was a long silence on the other end, the secretary realized what she had said and said, oh, but he'll be back next week. We will get to the point, church, every one of us, where we will have gone to be with the Lord and we will not return. Death will be no more. This miracle of Lazarus isn't to undo death and dying. That miracle happens a week later. Now, this one was to point the people to the power of Jesus Christ through the Father and to the truth of resurrection. It was to expand, expand their boundaries. This was a very temporary miracle. Lazarus would get sick and die again, and people would mourn for him again. Mary and Martha down the road would have to prepare Lazarus' body for burial again, and the physical life Jesus gave Lazarus would only be a reprieve. But the miracle that happens in a week gives us eternal life. And there's not going to be a time where we die again. It'll just be life with God forever. We are very confused about death. Too many people look upon this world and this life as being in the land of the living. And when our heart stops and our brain waves end as going to the land of the dead. But the opposite is true. We are currently in the land of the dying. And when we do leave this life, we will go to the land of the living. You see, we think when a death occurs, life has, has ended. That's it. But it's not true. It's just life as we know it has ended. And real life, true life, has just begun. All those people, Lazarus, the widow's son, Jairus' daughter, they'd all die again. We will live forever. As a young man, D.L. Moody was called suddenly to preach a funeral sermon. And he hunted all through the four Gospels to try to find one of Christ's funeral sermons. And it's obvious to us that search is fruitless. What he found was that Christ broke up every funeral he ever attended. Death could not exist where Jesus Christ was. When the dead heard his voice, they sprang to life. When Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, he meant it. Jesus didn't merely say there is a resurrection. He claimed he is the resurrection the fact that he would rise from the dead is a guarantee that the others would too. 
Christ is simultaneously man's greatest friend and death's greatest enemy. He never conducted a funeral because in his presence death flees. He is resurrection and life. Resurrection is a unique belief. Most religions teach one of three things will happen when you die. Uh, When we die, we're dead forever. It's just done. Um, Some believe that when we die, we go to a cosmic holding place where we'll be reincarnated over and over again. Uh, Insects, animals, people. Uh, Some believe that when we die, we'll... Um, get wings, we'll turn into angels, we'll go full Clarence, and we just hope that we hear the ringing of bells. But none of those options are biblical. The Bible teaches resurrection, and belief in the resurrection is the the biblical idea that God is going to give us new life. And we don't cease, we don't go to a cosmic holding place, we don't get wings, but we're going to be raised up like Jesus was, made complete again, fully with mind, soul, and body. When Jesus goes to the grave in a week, the Bible doesn't tell us what happens during those three days while he's dead. There's always been speculation and books written about what happens throughout church history. We just don't know. But I bet Satan thought he had Jesus right where he wanted him. Jesus was dead. The disciples were crying. The world was in shock and disillusioned. And Jesus, in Satan's mind, had been delivered a knockout blow. But Jesus stood back up and dealt a knockout blow to death and defeated it for good. The Bible tells us that. In 1 Corinthians 15, 54, death has been swallowed up in victory. The battle has won the war for us, church. We know that. As one of the the best songs from the cathedral say, one of my favorite songs, my dad would play it on repeat. I've read the back of the book, and we win. In conclusion, it, it reminds me, how sometimes in history a single battle can determine the outcome of an entire war, like Gettysburg or Normandy. And one of the ones that strikes me is the battle between General Wellington and Napoleon. The British army under General Wellington was one of the last um, pockets of opposition to the French commander. And they were heading to war, and there was a communication system set up as churches would flash lights all the way from Belgium Um, across the English Channel. And when the battle ended, um, England proved victorious, and the message was sent, Wellington defeated Napoleon. And the message was received and passed church to church to church until it got to the English Channel. And then, right as they were about to send the message, the fog came up, and it cut off the message, and all they received was Wellington defeated. For hours, the nation feared the overthrow of their country. They were defenseless until the morning came and the fog lifted and they received the full message, Wellington defeated Napoleon. On Good Friday, the world was like those in England, believing Jesus defeated. 
And we must remember, this is not the full message. When the fog lifts that Sunday morning, the, the message will be clear. Jesus defeated death. The crowd gathered that day, Mary and Martha as well. They couldn't see the, through the fog. The people during those three days of Christ's death, they couldn't see through the fog. And when we end our hours on this earth, there will be people all around us who can't see through the fog. But this is not us. We are children of the resurrection. We can rest easy in the knowledge and assurance that even though there is fog, we know what the full message is. The final score, Jesus won. Death zero. Good morning, everybody. This has been a long month, and we will certainly have longer. But I wanted you to know that I've appreciated hearing from you this week of everybody who's had blessings of settling in routines and of answered prayers, of how you've loved on one another and served one another, and how the church keeps on moving and living. And I want all those who have been out of sorts and struggling, all those who have been pushed out of jobs and pushed out of the church, out of routines, I want you to know I'm praying for you. I love you greatly. It's hard for us as we head into this Palm Sunday to even contemplate that we're not going to be together. But even though we've been pushed from the church building, we have not stopped being the church. We have more opportunity than ever to go into the world and tell the good news. The stories of Jesus must be told. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to tell the story of Palm Sunday. It should probably be called the Triumphal Entry or Passion Sunday, but people waved date palm branches at Christ's entrance and the name is just always stuck. But let's set the stage for this Palm Sunday story. Jesus and his disciples, they've come from Bethany to Jerusalem. It was about two miles away. In the Jewish culture, Passover is the pinnacle of the holidays. It would have been crowded, volatile. It's a party atmosphere and an atmosphere of religious zeal. There's excitement and expectation. And news of Jesus had spread and the whispers among the people were that he is certainly a contender for the Messiah. And on top of all of this is that ever-festering frustration with the Romans. During this Passover in particular, Jerusalem is a powder keg about to explode. But as this city throngs and it pulses in the throes of the biggest party of the year, I want to draw your attention away from the festivities and the masses to the submissive minority. Because in this story, as well as in many other stories in scriptures, it's not about the, what's going on in the world, but what is going on in a small group of people who are following the Lord and submitting to his directions, even when there's chaos all around. It is always worth our time to look into how to be more obedient and submissive to God. So let's read our passage in Luke 19, verse 28 through 40. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples ahead, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Say, The Lord needs it. Those who went ahead 
found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked him, Why are you untying the colt? And they replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came to the place where the road heads down from the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully praising God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He replied, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. We're looking at submission. Submission of Jesus to the will of the Father. Jesus is going to Jerusalem for the last time. And he does it in a way that fulfills prophecy, yes, but he's also painting one more target on his back. You see, Zechariah had said centuries before, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, when we think of kings, we think war horses and armies, but the people of Jesus' time were very familiar with this verse. It was tied very strongly to the Messiah, to the son of David, who would be revealed to be the Christ. It was a sign for everybody, pay attention. If you see a man on a donkey coming into Jerusalem, pay attention. So Christ comes in riding, it's a fulfillment of prophecy, but it's a very dangerous situation as well. You see, the last time he was here in Jerusalem, there had been at least two attempts on his life. He wasn't going around telling people he was a good teacher or the king of Israel or even the Messiah. No, Jesus had been going around and asserting his deity in no uncertain terms. He was telling the people, I am God or I am the son of God. And in John chapter 10, the last time he was here, Twice the Jews took up stones to stone him for blasphemy. Jesus' death had already been ordered by this point. And the last week has just made things worse. A couple days earlier, just a few miles from Jerusalem itself, he had raised a man from the dead who had been dead for four days in front of an entire crowd. And this whole city is abuzz about the man who can raise people from the dead. Jesus is safer, much safer in the countryside, away from Jerusalem, which is the center of power for his enemies. Once he steps foot in Jerusalem, the Jewish leaders would pounce immediately. And yet here he is in full knowledge of the danger of this act, of him claiming to be king and claiming to be Messiah and claiming to be God. And he's ascending to Jerusalem because this is what the Father desired. And that's all that matters to Jesus. Think with me a moment about what going to Jerusalem means for Jesus. He's not ignorant. He isn't ignorant of what is going to happen to him. Going into Jerusalem means this. Ahead is the mental and emotional turmoil of the Garden of Gethsemane. Ahead is the betrayal by Judas with a kiss. Ahead, the disciples 
turn tail and run, and Peter himself denies Jesus three times. Ahead is a mock trial by a kangaroo court. Ahead is the rejection by the multitude, the same multitude that is currently crying at this triumphal entry, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hours later, they're going to yell, crucify him, crucify him. Ahead is shame and mistreatment, the mocking of the soldiers, the plucking of the beard, the beating by the Romans, the whipping with the cat and nine tails, the crushing of the crowns into the thorn of Christ's holy brow. Ahead is the cross, the suffering, the pain, the drink of vinegar and gall, the crowds mocking, the spear in his side. And worst of all, ahead is Jesus Christ, alone on the cross, bearing our sins, and God the Father turning away from his Son and pouring out his righteous wrath upon our sins because they lay upon his shoulders. And he utters that mournful cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus is ascending to Jerusalem, and he knows everything that lays before him. And yet Jesus is submissive to the will of the Father. His human side dreads what is to come, but he is willing to have the Father lead him no matter what or where that entails. And as we follow Jesus Christ ourselves, we need to be praying the prayer of the Garden of Gethsemane and making it our very own in our lives. Not my will, but yours be done. The second element of submission in this story is the submission of the disciples to Jesus. Jesus is obedient to the Father. The disciples are obedient to Jesus. You see, the disciples, they're given a very, they're a very strange instruction about this cult. Jesus tells them, go into the city, find a cult, and take it. And when someone comes to you and says, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. And they went. The disciples willingly submitted to the command of their master, Jesus Christ. And they went to the city, and they seized the cult for his use. We need to have some cultural understanding to appreciate this verse. Donkeys are very expensive. In our culture today, it'd be like somebody, at least in Council Grove terms, it'd be like somebody coming up and asking to take your brand new Ram 1500 or trying to seize it without your knowledge. But you see, the disciples are not breaking the law here. They're using a Roman custom called angaria, which means a dignitary could seize the use of property for personal reasons. It's kind of like a president coming up to you and saying they need your car. But here's the thing. If your master does not have the prestige or the authority to seize that property for personal reasons, then both servants and masters are considered thieves and are fully guilty under the law. Any rabbi does not have the prestige to use Angaria. Not even close. This act shows that they see him as more than just teacher. He has the authority of king. The disciples, by doing this act, by wading into this legal thing, are declaring in faith that they believe Jesus is way more than just a rabbi. He is the rightful king of Israel. Can you imagine those two disciples? They're told to do this. 
go up to a stranger's house, demand his expensive property, and yet they don't question him. They don't think twice about Christ's request. Their, their trust is well-placed, though. Because in verses 32 through 34, when they get to the place where this is all supposed to happen, it happens just like Jesus tells them. Jesus told the disciples exactly what they would find, exactly what would lay ahead, about how the colt was tied, the colt unridden, the conversation that would happen between the disciples and the owner of the colt. Jesus knew it all. And church, he knows it all. Every moment that has happened and will happen. We need to be better at learning this lesson. If he tells us to go, we go. Or if he tells us to do, we do. We should trust him enough to do that bare minimum. What we are really saying if we don't submit to his authority is that we don't truly believe he has the authority. At least he's not God in our lives. Lastly, and this may seem funny to you, but I want to look at the submission of the donkey to Jesus. They take this donkey, they throw their cloaks on it, Jesus sits on it, and they start this procession. And the people, they throw their cloaks on the road, and they're shouting and they're crying praises to Jesus. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. And yet, Scripture tells us this donkey had never had a man sat on it before. It was not broken. It was not tamed. And yet when Jesus sits on it, it's docile. It carries Jesus into the city among a throng of people, shouting and pressing in on it. And we know this is general knowledge. The donkey is a stubborn animal. Maybe the most stubborn of all the equine species. It has a reputation of being ornery, of being stubborn. And yet here we have the stubborn will of a donkey, totally submitted to Jesus Christ. All of nature is submissive to God. The winds, the sea, fish, rocks, animals, they are all subject to his will. It is only mankind that shakes his stubborn fist in the face of God in rebellion. And I can't tell you how foolish and dangerous this is. God is your maker. And never has the creation ever had authority over the creator. God made us to be with him and in his kingdom. And you will never be right in your heart. You will never be right in your life until you willingly submit to your maker. Even a donkey submits to Jesus. And this moment of this story begs the question, are you less wise than a donkey? Are you more stubborn than a donkey? It says that if the people do not praise Jesus Christ, the rocks themselves will shout out. When you meet God on his throne, face to face, do you really want to look at him and answer him while you were less submissive than a donkey and less full of praise than a pile of rocks? I do not. I want to be able to look at God and answer truthfully that I was as sold out as I could be for him. I do not want to be outdone by donkeys 
and rocks. It's a very long story, but I want to share with you in conclusion today the story of um, Paul Harvey and how he chose submission, of how he came to the Lord. He wrote his testimony in 1972 about what happened the summer before in 1971, and I think it's worthwhile. Like I said, it's long, but it's worthwhile. This is what he says. Newsmen are said to have tough, tie, tough hides, cold hearts, printer's ink in their veins. We see so much of tragedy, disaster, the mud and blood that make news. Understandably, we can become insensitive, cynical, hard. That's why I'm grateful for what happened to me just about a year ago up a little mountain in Cave Creek, Arizona. I think today, all the experiences in my life had been building up to this one. First, the Christmas Eve where a gunman's bullet took the life of my policeman father. My mother had apartments built into our house. My sister and I, we worked to provide an income. Radio was just coming into its own, and by age nine, I was making cigar box crystal sets. And a few years later, I was working in Tulsa's KVOO radio station. I spent every spare minute around that station. Eventually, they put me on the payroll. I was 14 and did everything from sweeping to writing commercials with a little announcing on the side. I kept remembering what a teacher had said to me, Paul, in this wonderful land of ours, any man willing to stand on his toes can reach the stars. And I'll tell you, radio became my star. At 17, I got a full-time job at a radio station in Salina, Kansas. Then came Oklahoma City, then St. Louis. I met a lovely girl who was there in St. Louis doing an educational program. We were married, and she's been the angel of my life ever since. By 1945, I had my own network news program, and by 68, I was on television and doing a newspaper column as well. Seemingly, I'd achieved everything for which a man could ask. Everything, that is, except for a quiet heart. You see, something was missing. There was a vague emptiness in my life, an incompleteness that I could not define. This emptiness was still with me in March of last year when Angel and I went vacationing in Arizona. We noticed an isolated church on an isolated hilltop. And on one bright Sunday morning on Impulse, Angel and I decided to attend a service there. We drove up the mountain road, and as we rounded the last turn, the little steeple pierced an azure sky, and white clapboard siding reflected the morning sun. Inside were a dozen or so worshippers on wooden folding chairs, a scene reminiscent of ones I'd seen many times as a youth. You see, during those formative years, there was one scripture verse I had learned that stayed with me throughout the years. For God so loves the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3.16 Sometimes I would get to thinking about how wonderful that thought is, everlasting life. And one day when I was alone in my room, just a boy, I knelt at my bed and I offered my life to Christ. But here I was, upright piano, sounding a familiar melody in this unfamiliar little Arizona church. And I was reminded of my long-ago expression of belief. I guess I did believe. But I don't know if I actually believed. The minister that day started talking about submission. Submission to God. 
and I twisted in my chair. New understanding discomfited me. Long ago, I had asked to be saved, but I had never offered to serve. And I began to realize how much I held back from God. I thought of my prayer time every morning driving to Chicago at 4.30 a.m. And on that dark, deserted expressway, I would seem to hear God's plan for the day. But by the time I got downtown, I'd be arguing with him and making exceptions and bending his directions. Was this the source of my uneasiness, the inconsistency within me? And the minister, he looked over his glasses at the congregation. If anyone here agrees with me about the importance of submitting the rest of your days to God and wants to be baptized, step up here and join me beside the pulpit. I found myself on my feet down the aisle by his side. The preacher had said there was nothing magic in that water, but I descended into its depths and rose again, knowing that something life-changing had happened, a cleansing inside out. No longer was there two uncertain, contradictory Paul Harveys, just one intensely happy one. I felt a fulfilling surge of the Holy Spirit, and afterwards I cried like a baby. You see, yesterday I prayed for guidance and didn't really mean it. Today the prayer is the same, but now there's a genuine desire to know what he wants and an eagerness to do what he says. As a boy, I learned John three sixteen, and yet it took me to last year to learn John fourteen fifteen as well. If you love me, keep my commandments. The Christian life is one of obedience, not partnership. And my heart swelled with joy in my new surrender. And I could only think to myself how wonderful we get to experience this life and heaven too. Church, the whole world bends to God. Jesus was obedient to his Father, even unto death. The disciples obeyed Jesus' instructions, even an odd one about seeking out the colt of a donkey. And a stubborn old donkey obeyed the King of Kings. And a powerful entertainer who was incomplete in his life without letting God take control finally submitted. How about you? We are heading to the cross. Scripture tells us, that our old nature must be crucified up there and our new nature bend its knee to God. You have a lot of time on your hands now. Our world has been forced into a slowdown. Maybe this Palm Sunday can be the first day where you can truly quiet yourself and bend the knee and let God be God in your life. Nothing will be right until you do.